Good evening. <clears throat> if we have not had the chance to meet, my name is Naman. I'm one of the assistant pastors here on staff, and uh, a privilege of mine to be preaching God's Word tonight. Um, we've started a, an Advent mini-series here at the evening service, uh, and tonight we land on the theme of joy. How do we find joy in this eager anticipation of uh, first witnessing Jesus coming into the world, uh, but certainly as modern-day Christians, how do we experience joy as we eagerly await His return to the world? So, um, I chose this passage, Matthew chapter 2, um, a, a very well-known Advent text for us, so I'll read it, and if you could respond as is custom here, with thanks be to God. Let's read from the Gospel of Matthew chapter 2. <clears throat> now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired them where the Christ was to be born. And they told him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for it is written by the prophet, And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people, Israel. And then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go, and search diligently for the child, and when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way, and behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. And when they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you. Now to help situate us uh, into this passage, it's fairly on in the, in the Gospel of Matthew. And if you're familiar with it, this follows Matthew chapter 1, where Matthew lists this long genealogy, this, this family tree of Jesus, if you will, and it helps frame our minds towards where Jesus' lineage came from, right? It started from Abraham through many generations, then to, uh, to David, and finally to, to Jesus himself. And what Matthew is trying to do throughout his entire gospel, if there was one main message of the gospel of Matthew, it is to say that Jesus is the long-awaited Messiah that was, to be, that was prophesied, right? Jesus fulfills this identity of this king, this Messiah, to come. And so this is how he's setting up the gospel by, by laying out the, the lineage of who Jesus was and his entire family. <clears throat> and now we come to this narrative in, in chapter 2 and, and the birth of Jesus and the significance of him being born in the town of Bethlehem, as we read in the, uh, the, the prophecy from Micah listed there, cited there in, in, the <clears throat> in the passage, which was also the birthplace of David, his ancestor. 
Bethlehem, prophesied to be the birthplace of this coming Messiah. So this is how Matthew is beginning his recounting of who Jesus was and that he was the true king that was born. So with that backdrop in mind, we enter into this passage and and we see very unique responses to the birth of Jesus, right? We see actually three unique responses. And so that'll be our main focus for tonight. And as I was thinking about this and as I was going through this passage and preparing, I was thinking in a practical way, there has probably been not anything else that I found more polarizing than I found to be people's responses to cilantro. I don't know why, but for whatever reason, I, when I ask people whether or not they want cilantro in their food or in their guacamole, it's either, yes, I love cilantro, please, more is better, or I absolutely loathe cilantro, do not let me go near it. That's, that, that has always fascinated me, to the point where I did some research on it, and I don't know if this is true, this is the extent of how much I can Google, but um, <clears throat> apparently there's something in cilantro that uh, inherit, inherited in our own DNA. For some people, it makes cilantro taste like soap. And for others, that doesn't exist, right? So it, for me, it kind of answered this question of why this decision or this response to cilantro was so polarizing. And as, as silly as that example is, this, as we come to this passage and we see these polarizing responses to the birth of Jesus, we're reminded by this truth that no encounter with Jesus leaves someone unchanged. That no encounter with Jesus leaves someone unchanged. That is to say that when we encounter Jesus, we are going to walk away somehow changed. As we, walk, as we will read the rest of the Gospel of Matthew, you'll see people who were blind that could now see, people who were deaf that could now hear, people who were sick who were healed. So there were people who changed for the better, who believed, who walked away praising and worshiping this true king. But then there are also others who rejected Jesus. There are people who heard his message and walked away offended, who walked away angered, who walked away so loathing him enough to want to kill him. So no encounter with Jesus will leave you unchanged, will leave us, even as modern Christians, modern-day people, unchanged. So we'll look at some of the responses that we saw of Jesus. Uh, Two major responses, uh, the response of Jerusalem and the response of the wise men. So we'll look at how these two people groups responded. Firstly is the response of Jerusalem, and particularly I'll, I'll kind of hone in on the response of Herod and how he responded to the birth of Jesus, starting again in verse 1. Uh, Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, so we know that Herod is in power, these wise men come and they say, where is this person born king of the Jews? Because they saw this bright star. And then picking back up in verse 3, when Herod the king heard this, he was troubled and all of Jerusalem with him. And then skipping back down to verse 7, then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go, search diligently for the child, and when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. And we'll pause right there. So who exactly is Herod? So we know that Herod is the king in power at the time of Jesus' birth. Uh, but a, a little bit of a historical background for us. Herod, also known as Herod the Great, was actually a fairly successful king. 
by way of kings go in terms of his accomplishments. He was a great builder of public works. He was known as a great administrator, and he even helped restore the temple of uh, Jerusalem. His accomplices were actually admired by his enemies. He was wealthy. He was politically gifted. Uh, but when we take a closer look at who Herod was as a person, that's when things start to fall apart a little bit more. Herod was intensely loyal, almost to the sake of of paranoia. Herod laid heavy taxes and required hard labor on the Jews during his reign, and he grew so paranoid against his own kingship that he had his wife, he had his two sons, and he had close friends put to death out of fear of being overthrown as king. Upon his death, as he was nearing his death, he ordered the mass murder of a hundred members of his senate so that people would really weep on the day of his death rather than rejoice over his passing. So this is the kind of person that's in power. So then we begin to see that as we step into this narrative and as other people are coming in from the outside asking where the king of the Jews is, we get to see why Herod is reacting the way that he is. Herod was a feudal king. He was appointed king of Israel by the Romans. And he was actually half Jewish and half Edomite. And as we know from our history in Genesis, Edomites being the people of Esau. So he's got half of Esau's blood in him and half of Jacob's blood in him. So we, got the, we can see sort of this internal tension that is being set up here. So that as Herod, uh, as things are kind of going normally, as, as Herod thinks, one day these wise men from foreign lands from the east come, and they ask, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? You can imagine how disorienting that was for him. As somebody who was already paranoid about his throne, about his kingship, again, his throne is put at stake They ask, who is the one born to be king of the Jews? Not just appointed, not just somebody who is placed in power, but inherently qualified and born to be in this position. Every time I read that line, I think of uh, Lord of the Rings, as if you've seen The Return of the King, the last installment of it, and you see the feudal king of Gondor sitting on his solo chair, but then the actual king of the, the throne of the king is, is steps higher, right? Somebody who was appointed versus somebody who was actually born to be in this position. This person that the wise men are searching for is all of a sudden a threat to him, whereas so far in verse 3 it says he was troubled by this, or a deeper connotation in the, in the Greek language is that he was terrified. He was in turmoil He was losing sleep over this. Herod was troubled. So you can start to feel the tension. You can start to feel this disorienting nature that is boiling up in Herod. So then he schemes. He comes up with this plan. What does Herod do? Is that he, He summons first... The chief priests and the scribes, just to do a quick fact check to make sure uh, he knows where this child was to be born. And then he gathers the wise men, these foreigners that have come, and he asks them in secret. So we already know that Herod feels a little uneasy about this. He wants to gather these men in secret without anybody else knowing them. So we know that he's threatened. He's using his own discretion. He doesn't want to stir any more feathers than have already been. And then he tells them, Go and search diligently for the child, and when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come to worship him. 
Now, if we continue the narrative in, in that chapter of Matthew, we know that Herod's ulterior motives were so that he could kill this child, that he could end this threat. And the irony is, in his lie towards the wise men, he knows the exact response he should have towards the child, so that I too may come and worship him. Instead, Jesus is met by Herod with threat, with hostility, with outright anger, with paranoia, so much so that he wants to order and find this child so that he can continue to be king, he can continue to remain on his throne. Herod's response is one of fear, deception, hostility. He rejects Christ altogether. Um, now, I, I'm kind of shifting and, and cheating a little bit and trying not to do the traditional three points, but there, there is a second people group in the Jews that I wanted to look at, uh, and then we'll look at the Jews' response of rejection as a whole. But the second be, being, if you re- read with me, starting in verse 2, whereas he who has been born king of the Jews, um, sorry, verse 3, and the king, when King Herod heard this, he was troubled, and all of Jerusalem with him. They were troubled with him. And assembling all of the chief priests and the scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. And they told him, in Bethlehem of Judea, for it is written by the prophet, and then they cite Micah, and you, O Bethlehem, the land of Judah, are by no means among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. So at first we see this very uh, polarizing response of hostility, of anger, of, of straight-up malice from Herod. But then we also see the uh, reaction and response from, from Jerusalem, from the Jews, from the chief priests and the scribes. And what is their reaction? First of all, they were troubled. They were troubled also when they heard this news. Now, you can ask why they were troubled, and, and one possible reason is, like, well, if Jesus is coming and He's going to overthrow Herod, then it's going to kind of dismantle and disrupt this way of life. But I think that the real reason that they were troubled is because they're taking their cues from Herod. If they know that Herod is troubled, if they know what kind of man that Herod is, they can only imagine the ramifications that this is going to cause for them for somebody to threaten Herod. So we see all of Jerusalem themselves being troubled. And furthermore, uh, the other characters, the other Jewish characters in the story are the chief priests and the scribes. So Herod gathers them. And as he's doing his fact check, as he's asking them where the king of the Jews is to be born, they cite for him, as would any good chief priest and scribe would do. I would imagine this was on their chief priest and scribe ordination exam, Bible Bible prophecy one-on-one, like where is the Messiah to be born? And they tell him, Bethlehem. And so then what do the chief priests and the scribes do next? Nothing. Absolutely nothing. There's no more mention of them in this passage. Right? As, as people who were part of a nation, part of a people group, who were long awaiting this Messiah, this true King to come to offer restoration, salvation, deliverance, and as a first hear of this birth of this King to come to fulfill that prophecy, you would, you would imagine that the response would be joy, would be worship, would be celebration, would be this grand party. But the people who are most qualified to know who Jesus was, we hear indifference, we hear silence, 
and we hear no more participation in this narrative. It takes at least an intentional drawing them out for us to acknowledge them as, as characters in this story. So whether it was taking cues from an earthly king and being troubled by his potential reaction or this complete indifference, it's not this third option, but it is yet another form of rejection. <clears throat> Knowing exactly who Jesus was supposed to be and where he was to be born, this, this invaluable knowledge that they had as religious elite in this society, and they did nothing with it. As we as ourselves approach this Christmas season, as we are thinking about our Christmas wish list for gifts, think about what it is that you would like for Christmas this year. Think about the biggest gift that you are thinking about, right? And imagine somebody actually gets it for you. They wrap it for you. They put it in a box if it's small enough to be in a box. <clears throat> uh, and they wrap it and they get it for you. And on the day of Christmas, they give it to you. They give you that that long-awaited gift, and they give you also the gift receipt for that said gift, for whatever it is. And imagine then walking away from that gift since day one of Christmas, not actually enjoying the gift itself, whatever it is, playing with it, you know, driving it, enjoying it, putting it to good use, but walking away with the gift receipt saying, this is proof that I have it, and this is enough for me. And this is exactly what the chief priests and the scribes and the people of Jerusalem are doing. They have the prophecy in front of them. They have the words on the scrolls to where the Messiah, where the Christ was to be born. And they're walking away with just the satisfaction of that prophecy and not the actual king himself. So the response that we see of the Jews, whether you're Herod, whether you're a chief priest or a scribe, whether you're part of the general population, is one of general indifference or outright hostility. And I ask us, what is our gift receipt? What is our scroll that we feel satisfied right now in this life with whatever that is? How have we lost the sense of wonder of who Jesus is? <clears throat> what it actually means for us to anticipate His birth and His coming again, for us to find joy and worship in Him. What is that Give for see, what is that filler for us? Are there ways in which we've been indifferent, apathetic to Christ, maybe even outright hostile towards the way that He is disrupting our own plans? And how do we restore the sense of joy, the sense of wonder, the sense of worship in Jesus? Which will lead me to the actual response of the wise men. <clears throat> I'll start by reading again in verse 9. After listening to the king, they went on their way, <clears throat> and behold, the star that they had seen when it first rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. And when they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. And then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts gold and frankincense and myrrh, and being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. Now, as these wise men <clears throat> are coming into Jerusalem, we have to acknowledge that these are foreign pagan men, right? They have 
no cultural, no um, heritage linked with Jerusalem or Jacob or the, the forefathers of Israel. So they're coming from the east, most likely from Babylon or Persia or somewhere in Mesopotamia. But they're pagan scholars, and in, in other senses, they're, they're known as kings, the We Three Kings hymn that we often sing around Christmas. And for all intents and purposes, they are pagan, but they are, they are known to be the spiritual elite of their day. Um, and so they were highly respected for their studies in astronomy, in astrology, in dream interpretation, in magic, and the like. So we can kind of see why that's the case when they see a star and they react to it, when they uh, listen to God in their dreams. And we see actually God speaking their language. So in a way, we see Matthew showing us the beginning of Gentiles being grafted in to the kingdom of God, that we see a lot of certainly the, the cultural and the family heritage of of Abraham to David all the way to Jesus, but this is where Matthew begins to introduce that Gentiles would become a part of the covenant community of God, that God is speaking in the ways that they would understand and that they would lead them to worship. <clears throat> so when they see this unusually bright star, which in their expertise at that time was, very com- was a common belief in pagan circles, that unusually bright stars heralded the birth of, of, of great men. Uh, Alexander the Great and Augustus Caesar were known to have been born on nights where there were unusually bur- uh, bright stars. So they, make, they see the star and they decide to make this journey, wherever they're from, probably a 40-day journey to Jerusalem. So it wasn't a quick overnight ride on a camel to Jerusalem, but it was this long pilgrimage for them, this long sacrifice to make this journey. So then they come to Jerusalem and the star has disappeared. So they go around asking, where is this person born king of the Jews? And so after their encounter with Herod, so that Herod himself can't see the star, the star disappears, but then it reappears. So it leads them to Bethlehem. And what is their response when they see this star again? Verse 10, and when they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy already demonstrating the very response that every other Jew should have had when they heard of this news, when they knew that the Messiah was born. And when they finally come to the place in Bethlehem where Jesus was laying, what is their reaction? Utter and complete worship. This unexpected use of pagan, non-Jewish wise men by using bright stars, by using astrology, by using dreams later on to tell them to not go back to Herod, to not report of where of Jesus' whereabouts, to begin seeing the, the engrafting of pagans and Gentiles into the kingdom of God. This is no endorsement by any means of astrology or the like, but it's to say that God uses us. God meets us where we are. God decides to speak to us. God allows us to have faith and to worship Him where we are. So Matthew begins his entire gospel, this narrative of Christ, as not one just reserved for a specific ethnic group, but for the world to see, to, for the world to worship, and to world, for the world to respond in exceedingly great joy. And so they come, they come bearing gifts, uh, as, as we've heard time and time again, gold and frankincense and myrrh, you know, gold was, <clears throat> sorry, gifts were a, a custom back then to acknowledge 
I'm paying homage to you. You are my king. I'm, I'm willing to give up these precious items because I know who you are, and I'd rather lay them down at your feet, acknowledging your identity. Now, the easiest thing for me to do as a preacher is to say then, go and do likewise. Don't respond like the Jews did. Don't respond like Herod did in hostility or indifference. And, and respond like the wise men did. Bring gifts, pay homage, make the pilgrimage, do whatever sacrifice it takes, and, and demonstrate this great joy. But that's kind of not where Matthew is going. But by specifically mentioning uh, these three gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh, I'm sure they brought other gifts with them, but he, he singles out these three in particular. Gold was traditionally a sign of royalty and a gift given to kings. Frankincense was this aromatic resin that was used by priests in the temple as they were doing burnt offerings. So trying to tie in themes of the temple, he's trying to tie in Jesus' holiness his righteousness. And lastly, myrrh was a valued spice and perfume used in the process of embalming after somebody has died. It's the very uh, spice that was used to embalm Jesus' body in John chapter 19. Matthew is already pointing to Jesus' passion and his burial and his death. So as we think about the gifts that the wise man brought, yeah, we can try to go and do likewise, but what Matthew is trying to key to us is that Jesus is the very gift that we have been waiting, that Jesus is the very and only source of worship and joy that deserves our homage, our, our time, our efforts, our intention, that Jesus is the long-awaited king that this world has been waiting for. Jesus is the royal king. He was killed and buried for us on our behalf, and his perfect holiness, his righteousness, was the only thing big enough to cover our sins. Uh, as best as I've been trying to do with my kids and talking about Christmas and, and Advent, I was sitting on the couch the other day with my son Bennett, <clears throat> and we were talking about Christmas. Uh, and it's, it's this familiar battle of trying to not make Christmas about the presents, right? And as, as, as much as I can do that for a three-and-a-half-year-old. And so now he, he's memorized these, these phrases. I was like, remember, Bennett, Christmas is not about gifts. He goes, yes, Jesus is our biggest gift, right? So this is all the things that he's learned to um, recite back to me. But we were sitting on the couch the other day, and we were talking about Christmas and try to, again, reiterate the true meaning of Christmas and, and what a gift Jesus is, uh, in his own, on his own accord, he turns to me and he goes, God, uh, Dad, Jesus is late. <laughs> Jesus is late, right? In his, in his young mind, he's trying to think about when Christmas is actually coming, and so he's trying to say Christmas should be now or tomorrow, but in, his, in a cute way of saying he's, Jesus is late. And what I realized in that moment is that even in such a young mind and a young heart, there is a qualitative difference from before Jesus and after Jesus. There's a very real different state that we have right now, uh, or even before we met Jesus, of, of life before Jesus, and now all of a sudden life after Jesus. 
that the more and more that we meditate on who Jesus is, and if we truly believe that He is the biggest, that He is the best gift of our lives, that He is the good news, that He is this true King that we've been awaiting for, it, it naturally creates for this eager anticipation as, as a child would understand, when is that coming? Why is it not here yet? How do I prepare myself for that moment? And that's our big hope as a church, that as we continue on in this Advent season, where, whether you are young, whether this is a, a veteran stage for you to recognize what Advent is supposed to be, to regain this sense of joy, this, of wonder, of this different state of life, of what life will be like when Jesus does return, and what life must have been like when Jesus first came for us to worship, to gather, to come bearing gifts, to, to bow down, to worship this one true King who promises full restoration um, in and through us, in and through this world. So that's who we come to worship. Would you pray with me?